This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have a very special guest. And I know you folks are tired of hearing me say that, but we do. We have a very special guest, Leon Cooperman. He is the founder and chief investment officer of Omega Advisors. They are a hedge fund that runs about $9.3 billion. His track record is actually quite fantastic. He's outperformed the S&P 500 uh, on an annualized basis of about 450 basis points. His tax uh, advantage fund has outperformed the broad index by a thousand basis points. Uh, he is a legend on Wall Street. He began his career uh, at Goldman Sachs, where he ran, eventually ran the research department. II rated uh, just number one. There are few people who are more fascinating and more knowledgeable about what it's like to run money, to do research, to execute a portfolio than Lee Cooperman. Very accessible, very humble, a tremendous, tremendous um, philanthropist, has committed to giving away a lot of his money. Uh, I, I can't begin to tell you uh, enough of, of how enjoyable our conversation was and, and what a pleasure it was to sit down with him for, for nearly two hours. He, he uh, was scheduled to leave at 1.30 and he waved me off. He just, you know, kept going and understood that uh, this was really a, a deep dive and didn't want to cut it short because he had to be somewhere else. So with no further ado from me, here is my conversation with Leon Cooperman. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My very special guest today, Lee Cooperman. You may or may not have heard of him. Lee was born in the Bronx of immigrant parents. Your, your whole curriculum vitae is going to take me 10 minutes to read, so I'm just going to do the short version. Columbia Business School, 1969, you got an MBA. Straight to Goldman Sachs, where you spent 22 years in the investment research department, eventually becoming co-chairman of the investment policy committee and chairman of the stock selection committee. You were voted onto institutional investors, all America research team for portfolio strategy. You ranked first in portfolio strategy from 1977 to 1985. You eventually set up Goldman Sachs's asset management division and then leave to launch Omega Advisors, where your flagship overseas fund has averaged 14.6% from 1992 to 2014, and that's about 50% better than the benchmark S&P 500. Lee Cooperman, welcome to Bloomberg. Nice to be with you. And, and for those of you folks who may not be familiar with either Goldman Sachs or Omega Advisors, you're probably listening to the wrong uh, radio station. So let's jump right into your uh, uh, a little bit of your background. What did you do before you found your way to Wall Street? Well, uh, I'm kind of like an Horatio Alger story, uh -huh. and I say this with uh, great humility. I've been very lucky in life. Uh, basically, I was born in the South Bronx, uh, first generation of my family to get a born in America, first mm -hmm. generation of my family to get a college degree. I went to public school in the Bronx, PS 75. I went to high school in the Bronx, Morris High School. I went to college in the Bronx. Uh, 
West Bronx. Uh, my Both of my grade school and my high school was in the East Bronx. I went west to follow the advice of Horace Greeley, and I went to <laughs> Go West, College. young man? Uh, go West, young man. I went to uh, Hunter College, uh, part of the City University of New York. Um, graduated in 1964. Went to work for Xerox Corporation up in Rochester. Well, let me stop you right there. From Hunter to Xerox, what did you do on at Xerox? Well, it was very interesting. I don't know how much time we have. I tend to be we very have all, chatty. I have all day. You're the one with okay. the Well, you time know, basically, um, it's very interesting. You know, part of uh, my success in life, I attribute to luck, uh, a certain part to education, hard work. Uh, By the way, that's a theme that every person who's done an interview with me has more or less said, well, you know, I worked hard, but I also got really lucky. Yeah, well, I would say that uh, you're not realistic if you don't think luck plays a part in mm -hmm. uh, one's success. And uh, I like to think I'm, above all, I'm realistic and self-effacing and have humility. Uh, but basically, it's a little bit of a story to get to answer your question. Do but tell. Back in the 60s, and it st still may be the case today, that if you finished your major and minor in three years... You could count in your first year of dental or medical school towards your fourth year of college and get a separate degree. Uh, I actually did something similar with law school. I applied okay. part of law school towards my okay. undergraduate. So, you know, basically uh, in the summer of 1963, I toiled very hard in the University of Pennsylvania laboratories. And I took a course in physical chemistry to finish off my major. My major was chemistry. My minor was math and physics. And I enrolled uh, in the University of Pennsylvania Dental School. And after eight days, <laughs> I wondered if I was making the right decision. And so, you know, part of you know life, not only is luck, is intuition and making the right decision. That, that was a good instinct. I cannot picture you as a dentist. Well, you know, instead of having my hand in their mouths, I now have my <laughs> hand in their pockets, I guess okay. you could say. But basically, <laughs> uh, I went, it was a very traumatic period of my life. I went to the dean of the dental school. And I said, I would like to return to my undergraduate school, finish off my fourth year unencumbered by any decision, and then in the fullness of time, make a decision to either return to dental school or whatever. And he put me on a real guilt trip uh, uh, in the sense that he said, you deprived the 101st applicant of a dental school education. How can you decide after eight days? And so I returned to undergraduate school. The only person that really understood the import of my decision and the difficulty was a dean of Hunter College at the time. His name was Glenn T. Nigren. I just noticed an obituary several years ago that he passed away. And he said, boy, this must have been a tough decision. But of course, you can matriculate back into Hunter. And I went back to Hunter, at which point I had all electives. My major and minor uh, was completed. Mm -hmm. So I took 10 courses in economics, got 10 A's, and I had an unusual situation of graduating as a major in chemistry, minor in math and physics, but honors in economics. And uh, I was interviewing in uh, 1900 and I guess 63, early 64, for a job. Xerox Corporation came to the campus, uh, and I was lucky enough to get an invite back to Rochester to meet with other people for a second uh, you know, f uh, interview. And I wound up getting the best job offer of anyone in the City University of New York. <laughs> they offered me, I think it was $7,500 or $7,000 a year, which I accepted. And I started working there in August of 1964, and they really, uh, in effect, did not make a full disclosure to me about the job. Because what they didn't tell me when I started, uh, when they offered me the job, is a month later they were going to a 24-hour work week, meaning 
One week, I'd have to work 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. The next week, 4 in the afternoon to midnight. Three shifts a day. Three shifts a day. Um, and so I was enrolled in the University of Rochester Graduate School of Business at night, working towards an MBA. Uh, uh, but the weeks that I was in the 4 in the afternoon to midnight shift, I'd have to find somebody else to shift off with, work 16 hours, go to school, work 16 hours, go to uh-huh. school. And I had a, had a lovely life at, wife at that time. Well, was still a lovely wife. She's uh, married 51 years. And she said, look, I'm happy to work if you want to go to school full time. And I took a leave of absence and I went to Columbia University Graduate School of Business in New York on a trimester basis, 16 months, got my MBA, interviewed, and uh, was lucky enough to get a job off of Goldman Sachs and entered Wall Street uh, via my MBA from Columbia to Goldman Sachs. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. And my very special guest today... Lee Cooperman, he is the founder of Omega Advisors. Prior to that, he spent 23 years in in the investment research department at Goldman Sachs. Let's talk a little bit about um, Goldman Sachs. You went right out of Columbia where you got your MBA into not the sexier investment banking half that I think Goldman at the time was better known for, but into research. What was your thought process? What attracted you to that? I basically had a strong interest in investing. Mm-hmm. And I thought investment research would be a good foundation for pursuing a career in investing. And, and Columbia was known as a deep value school. That was the training you had. Yeah, well, and- I, my, the, the professor that had the greatest influence on me was Professor Roger Murray, who was an adjunct professor of business at Columbia. Mm-hmm. His day job was uh, being the chief investment officer of College Retirement Equities Fund, uh-huh. and he taught at Columbia. He also uh, was an uh, author of one of the follow-up editions of uh, Security Analysis, the original publication, 1934, by Graham and Dodd. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he honed my interest. He was a fabulous professor, a real practitioner uh, of his profession, and one that uh, was a great inspiration. But, you know, um, it was a great experience. Uh, I never... I like, I like to say I like to hire PhDs in my business, uh, but my PhDs are poor, hungry, and driven. Uh, isn't, never, that, isn't that something that Mario Gabelli used to say all the uh, time? He says it all the time. We're great friends. You know, one of the great things that came out of Columbia Business School was Mario and I met, and we remained close friends for 50 years. You know, it was the Columbia experience that got me the entry card into Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't say it's right, but the odds are I could not have gotten into Wall Street directly from Hunter College into an investment position at Goldman. Uh, but um, you know, part of this, like I said earlier, Horatio Alger story, you know, I, um, when I went to Columbia Business School, I had a six-month-old child, uh, had a National Defense Education Act student loan to repay, had no money in the bank, and had to get on to making a living. So I got my degree on January 31st of 1967, and the very next day, February 1st of 67, I started my uh, close to 25-year career at Goldman Sachs. So you were in the research department. Let me let me go over some of the stats from that because they're really so impressive. You voted on to the All-American Research Team. You were the number one portfolio strategist, according to investor, uh, institutional investor from 1977 to 1985. That That's a, a heck of a good run. And then after all those years in the research department, you helped build Goldman Sachs Asset Management. I actually started it, but uh, I'd say first in the research department, uh, 
not, not being self-serving, I, I had two roles. I started out as an analyst mm-hmm. in the retail business, and then in the mid-'70s, I became co-director of research, and in 1976, I was named partner in charge of research. And I essentially had two roles in Goldman Research. One I would call an orchestra leader, mm-hmm. where I ran the research department, and the other I would call a soloist in my role as chairman of the Investment Policy Committee, helping set investment policy and marketing that investment policy to our investing clients. And I'm pleased to say, again, not being self-serving, because it was a real team effort, but uh, when I took over the research department at Goldman, we were uh, basically unranked. And when I left the research- That's a polite way to say dead last. No, not not last, but we we, we were not ranked in the top. We were not reviewed as a research firm. And when I left the research department in 1989 to start Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Goldman Sachs Research was number one mm-hmm. in Institutional Invest All-America team, number one in Charlie Ellis's Greenwich Research Survey, and number one in Financial World, which doesn't exist anymore. The first two still exist in terms of measuring people's uh, effectiveness. Now, to show you how little influence, when I say this, uh, it's not, <laughs> this is not video, how little influence I had at Goldman, and I say this with a big smile because <laughs> I, I was well-regarded. Uh, for a decade, I was telling Goldman Sachs, you're making a mistake by not being in the asset management business. And for dec- I was I was shocked when I was reading your background, and I'm like, wait, Goldman Sachs didn't have an asset management division well, uh, before 1980-something? It may, it, it, 19, it's hard to imagine. 1991, actually. And uh, for decades, I was telling the firm, you're making a mistake by not being in asset management. And for decades, they said, Lee, you don't get it, that we are of the belief that brokers should do brokerage, money managers do money management, don't compete with your customer. Goldman Sachs' typical customer at that time was an institutional investor. And so I said, well, look, look around you. Merrill Lynch Asset Management, mm-hmm. uh, uh, CSFB Asset Management, uh, Kid, Kid of Peabody's division was called Webster Asset Management. Everybody was getting into the business except one firm who was Goldman's arch trading rival, and that was Solomon Brothers. Mm-hmm. And then one morning, Solomon comes out and says, we're pleased to announce that Bob Solomon Jr. will be leaving the research department to start Solomon Brothers Asset Management. And Bob Rubin and Steve Friedman, who were then co-heads of the firm, came to me and said, you know, we made a mistake. Uh, you were right. <laughs> you we were, were right. Would, would you leave research and do for us an investment management what you did for us in research? And so after about a year or so of doing this, it became very clear that, you know, I had to be on the road constantly to innovate new products, to uh, generate, you know, capture new assets, and I really wanted to visit companies and find outstanding managements, make outstanding investments. And I had great respect for Goldman. I owe a lot to my success at Goldman. I started with nothing, and I left Goldman a very wealthy man. I told him I really wanted to retire euphemistically. I work harder now than I worked at Goldman. I worked very hard at Goldman, and I wanted to basically start a hedge fund. And I I, I believe in noblesse oblige, and I told him, you know, we were still a private partnership um, at the time. And uh, I said, you know, if you think my having a hedge fund is a violation of my non-compete, you know, I wouldn't do it. And they said, no, we, we can't possibly say that because, you know, we don't want to have a hedge fund. You right. know? And uh, so I started Omega and uh, it became something I didn't plan, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, this is not a TV, but I'm a... I'm, I'm a you bi- have a big smile on your face. I, I know, and- but I, I, I basically also a larger than average guy. And I said, you know, I'm going to have a small business uh, uh, and succeed at the only thing that's eluded me all my life. And let's get to a normal size and lose some weight. And I have a gym in the office and work out and, you know, manage a few hundred million dollars and sure. get down to a normal size. Take, and, take, take it easy, in other words. Uh, <laughs> well, no, work, but basically get to a normal size, have a more balanced life. And uh, 
what happened is, you know, in 1992, my first year, we were up about 23 or 24%, uh, twice with the market. And in 93, I had a bad a year. I was up like 78% because we correctly called a big decline in interest rates globally. And the firm really started to grow quite dramatically in size. Uh, so um, we've gone from a startup of a few hundred million to nine and a half billion. But it's been a great run. And uh, I love what I do. And I do a lot of talks, to meetings with youngsters to try to give them career guidance. I tell them, you know, follow the advice of Henry Ford. The best way to make money is not to think about making money. Another theme is Warren Buffett says, go to work for somebody you respect and admire, tap dance to work, and everything else will take care of itself. And what I say basically is do what you love, love what you do. If you do what you love and you love what you do, uh, with a little bit of luck, you're bound to be successful. And that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, I love what I do. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Lee Cooperman. He is the founder of Omega Advisors and basically spent the first 25 or so years of his career at Goldman Sachs as the uh, director of the investment department, and he created and helped build the asset management department. Let's talk a little bit about philanthropy, Lee. You um, you said earlier you're the son of immigrants from the South Bronx. Um, did you ever imagine when you were going to school in, in the Bronx you would grow up to become a philanthropist? Never. 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 Uh, what What is that like coming and from, from self-described very humble roots? There, there's a question. We have a mutual friend, Doug Cass. And Doug said to ask you about the plumber's wrench that you sometimes uh, carry around. <laughs> uh, Doug's very kind towards me, very complimentary, and I appreciate Doug, and Doug's a bright fellow. Look, if you step back and think about it, there's only four things you could do with money. Mm -hmm. You could consume it mm -hmm. on personal expenditures, and thankfully I've been in a business that generates a lot of income, and if, you, if I don't collect art, I can't consume my wealth. Right. And I've never seen the value proposition art, and I really obviously missed a huge opportunity. Well, you know? the past couple of decades, yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, okay. But so you could consume your wealth. The second is you can give it to your children, mm -hmm. okay? And I'll take these one at a time after I mention all four. The third is you can give it to the government in the form of taxation, or the fourth is you can recycle it back into society. Okay, so on the first one, uh, I'm not a consumer. Uh, um, I tend to basically work very hard, work very long hours. I have a very purposeful wife, uh, married 51 years. She's been an educator for 35 years, working with learning disabled, neurologically impaired children. And so she's not a consumer because she's was working most of her uh, adult life. Um, so I can't consume it. You know, you could go out and if, you, if, you, if you're an art collector, you don't have enough money no matter, you know, what you make because you could buy a Picasso the other day for $190 million right. or whatever. So I'm not a consumer. Second, I believe in leaving my kids a rational sum of money. Do not want to take away from them the incentive to self-achieve. Sure. Okay. The third is who wants to give it to government if you don't have to give it to government. And right. the fourth, I've made a determination. My family has gone along with the determination to take the vast bulk of my money and return it to society to try and create equal opportunity for these splendid youngsters that don't have the opportunities today that I enjoyed, you know. So you let's go, let's start with the pledge. You uh, had a dinner with a um, number of people, and you signed the pledge where you essentially committed to giving away the majority I, of I, your I wealth. I think the, the pledge says you can give away at least half, and I intend to give away all uh, my money because I've given my children their inheritance uh, about three or four years ago. 
In and advance, in other words. In advance, yeah. Here's the money. Try not to do anything silly. Yeah, well, silly uh, I have two kids. One's a fabulous money manager. I'm very proud of his accomplishments. Runs, also runs a fund, Runs right? a hedge fund, and he's very, very smart. And then I have another son who's equally smart but in a different field. He has a PhD degree, an environmental scientist, uh, works for Conservation International on environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I gave them their inheritance, and, and what's left over... Basically, my game plan is to give away half during my lifetime to organizations that have made a difference to my family in our lifetime. And the other half, I'm going to give to a foundation where my children, grandchildren, daughter-in-laws could periodically get together and give away the money to worthy organizations. So, so let's talk so, about some of the organizations you— Well, let me first uh, you know, say this. that you know, the, uh, I said this to Warren Buffett. If you're speaking to people of great wealth, asking for half is not asking for enough, but nor is that request <laughs> original. In 1900, Andrew Carnegie said, he who dies rich dies disgraced. In 1930, Winston Churchill said, you make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. In 61, when President Kennedy was inaugurated, he said, if I recall correctly, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country or something along those lines. That's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I told Warren, I said, I'm Jewish. And he said, in the Talmud, you measure man not by what he has, but what he gives. So, um, you know, uh, I, I buy into the idea of philanthropic activity. And, you know, the large bulk of my giving thus far has been to organizations that have made a difference to me in my lifetime. So, you know, uh, Hunter College. Mm-hmm. I got a first-class education from the City University of New York for $24 a semester. That's unbelievable. Not only did I get a first-class education, but I got a terrific wife. So we've given them a very large amount of money, uh, both for scholarship and, uh, and financial aid. For, when I went to school, I mentioned $24 a semester. I think the kids today, it's like $6,000 a semester. And that's cheap compared to the private schools. It, it is, uh, but these kids have trouble coming up with that kind of money. So we're providing financial aid to help giving them equal opportunity. Then um, I have a debt of gratitude to Columbia uh, mm-hmm. for opening the door to my career in Wall Street, and I've given you, them a lot. You've endowed a chair, you've set up some scholarships, and yeah. you've given some unconstricted yeah. funds to them as well? Yeah, yeah. well, there's a large number. I'm embarrassed to mention the numbers. And I'm not the most generous guy you're going to meet. I've done what I felt I want to do. I mean, I sort of... I think our industry is popular with a lot of very generous people uh, that have uh, have a good soul and want to give back uh, to society. Then third, I was a, a, a trustee for many years of St. Barnabas Medical Center, one of the largest hospitals in the mm-hmm. state of New Jersey, and we're endowed a new wing that's under construction right as we speak. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Lee Cooperman of Goldman Sachs, and now he runs the hedge fund Omega Advisors. And I want to talk a little bit, Lee, about value investing, because really, you're one of the great value investors. Your your track record has been outstanding. You've outperformed the market by almost 50%. Your, your long-term track record is 14% and change per annum, significantly better than, than the benchmark. At least that's the, the most recent data. I, I saw, think we've done about 450 basis points, net of all fees, and excess of the S&P, which is fine. We don't want to leverage portfolio, so right. we're non-leverage. It's non-leverage, that's fantastic. It's you're, really, you're, really you're 5% always better. Room, always room for improvement, but we're, <laughs> we're okay. So, so let me throw one of my favorite quotes of yours at you and, and get some comments. You, you have been known to say your favorite question is, what is ridiculously priced now? So is it fair to, to say that you're not a believer that markets are perfectly efficient? Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, I don't think Warren Buffett 
got to going from flipping newspapers to worth $75 billion if the market was totally efficient. Uh, whether it's Mary Gabelli, whether it's Stan Druckermill, whether it's Lee Cooperman, I think that uh, everyone seems to think that it's hard to beat the S&P. Well, if, if it's so easy to underperform, the ability must exist to outperform. And I think there are enough people that have outperformed over a number of years to suggest that uh, with patience and some brains and uh, a little bit of luck uh, that you can outperform. So I'm committed to that proposition. Uh, I try to make money for my investors uh, number of ways. But number one, I do spend a lot of time on the macro picture. You know, is the stock market overvalued? Is it undervalued? Is it going up? Is it going down? Because at the end of the day, uh, stocks are high-risk financial assets. Short-term bonds and cash are low-risk financial assets. And if it's an environment that's negative for stocks, I want to be lightly exposed. On the other hand, if it's an environment positive for stocks, positive for stocks, I want to be heavily exposed. So let me ask you right now, what is ridiculously priced today? I think the only place that there's a bubble, in my opinion, is fixed income. Uh, I think in any kind of longer-term context, the Fed funds rate doesn't belong at zero. And ten has government, to go higher. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, um, uh, I think that uh, if interest rates deserve to belong where they are, uh, the stock market's not going to go up because over time, whatever the market is, whether it's the United States, whether it's Europe, whether it's Japan, whether it's uh, uh, China – that you would think that the long-term return in the stock market would be a function of the growth of the economy, the uh, rate of change in corporate profits, the consumer price index, and what you can earn in alternative instruments, whether it be bonds or cash. So if you take a look at the United States uh, and take 2012, 13, and 14, take those three years and average them, mm -hmm. the rate of growth in the economy has been about 2.3% per annum. So okay. we're way low on Fed fund rates. And, well, well and let me go through. So 2.3 was the real GDP growth. Profits rose a little over 6%. The rate of inflation was about 1.8%. If you were conservative and sat on cash, you earned zero for the three mm -hmm. years. And the 10-year government uh, current coupon was about 2.2, 2.3%. Notwithstanding those very modest numbers, the stock market returned over 20% per annum for each of the three years, 2012, 13, and 14. Mm -hmm. I think that game is over. I think that the market's caught up. The market's about 16 and a half, 17 times earnings. I think very fully valued in any kind of historical context. Uh, some would argue it's maybe modestly overvalued relative to history. But if you look at fixed income, it's very overvalued relative to history. I always tell people I don't want to sound like a statistician, but from 1960 to the present, the multiple in the S&P 500 averaged a touch under 15. Mm -hmm. When the rate of inflation ranged between 1% and 3% where it is now, the multiple was about 16.7, 16.8. That's where we are right now. Where we are now. However, in that same 50-odd year period, when the multiple in the market was 15, the 10-year U.S. government averaged 6.67, currently 2.3, so you're about a third of the long-term average, and uh, T-bills average a touch under 5, currently zero. Okay, so relative to fixed income, the market is very attractively priced. And I think the only place I see a bubble is because of the extraordinarily accommodative monetary policies globally, that interest rates are well below where they ought to be. And if interest rates belong where they are, that means growth in the economy, growth in profits are not what people are expecting. So it's one or the other. Either we're in a, a very overextended bond market rally and, and rates have to go higher, or stocks are very pricey. It's one or the other. And it sounds like you're betting that stocks are reasonably priced relative to all these other metrics versus bonds. Yeah. I think the stock market already allows for some rise in rates. And I think the issue for the stock market to deal with 
is the slope of the rise. I mean, I, I, I'm somewhat quizzical. I mean, in fact, I just saw Gary Cohn, who's a very bright man, mm-hmm. made a comment that the market's not prepared for a uh, Fed rate rise. And I don't get it. I, I honestly don't get it. Everybody's talking about it almost every day. For two years. Okay. <laughs> and I'll give you the statistics. There have been eight rate cycles since the mid-50s. And on average, from the first Fed rate hike to the market peak was 30 months. It took 30 months for, on average, the market to peak after mm-hmm. the first Fed rate hike. And the, av- the shortest period of time was 10 months. And those rate rises, those eight periods in the mid-50s, did not start from zero. Okay, And on average, from the first Fed rate hike to uh, a year after the first Fed rate hike, the market was higher by almost 10%. And so you know, uh, rising interest rates are indicative of improving economy, Demand rising for capital, profits. exactly. And so I think it's only when the rates get to a level that's competitive with returns in stocks that the stock market starts to decline. But you know, we have a central bank that's cheering on for more growth, more inflation, and uh, they're going to be as accommodative as they can be. And I think it's going to be it's going to require inflation over two percent for the Fed to become more restrictive, and uh, that would probably require wage growth of about three and a half percent, which probably won't happen until probably late. 2016, maybe 2017. You know, we ran similar numbers that you just described in terms of how the market performs in a rising rate environment. And the one thing that was really clear was when you start from relatively high interest rates in a period of high inflation, that's the sort of rate rise that's not great for equities. But when you're starting from a very low level and what's lower than zero and inflation is modest, you tend to see stocks rise even as rates go higher. Yeah, that would be my uh, view. It's only, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not a complex concept, but it's a very, very important point I'm going to make. And that is, over time, the only way bonds adjust to higher interest rates is the decline in price to keep the coupon current. Mm-hmm. The way stocks and companies adjust to higher inflation is they take the inflation in their costs, they incorporate in their selling prices, so a higher inflation lifts the nominal level of right. revenues and earnings. It's only when the Fed or central bank is fighting to curb inflation that the market starts to decline because curbing inflation is tantamount to curbing growth. And investors pay a low multiple in anticipation of slowing growth. Right. But we have a Fed that's very concerned about you know income disparity, social inequality, and wants to get more economic growth. And so I think it's going to be quite some time before the Fed takes the punch away from the punch bowl. Uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't original. I think it was George Schaefer, some technician, uh, 50 years ago, coined the phrase three steps and stumble. Mm-hmm. It took three tightenings by the Fed for the market to, to have a stumble. And we haven't had the first tightening yet. And it, it's fairly safe to say that we're not looking at any sort of real inflation. And wage growth, even the most recent data, which has been improving, still fairly tepid in terms yeah, of, right. of wage improvement. I would say that the rate of inflation is south of 2%, and uh, it will be a while before we get above that. So, so let's talk about some of your favorite metrics. You mentioned where the P.E. ratio is. Tell us about other ways that you look to measure equities, whether it's dividend yield or what have well, you? Well, I'm very eclectic. You know, as I said before, we start out first trying to develop a view of the market. Once we develop top down, that, macro top down view. macro view, 
And then on the bottom up, um, we try we understand the value proposition that the S and P 500, which is the broadest based, most accepted index, offers. So if you look at the S and P 500, it's an index of 500 companies growing on average five, maybe six percent per annum, uh, that basically uh, has a dividend yield of about two percent, that has a debt to capital ratio of around 35 or 36 percent, sells a little under three times its nominal book value, and for that set is it. Statistics, you're paying uh, about 16 and a half, 17 times earnings. So our game is very simple. We try to find more growth at a lower multiple, mm-hmm. more underlying asset value uh, than the market has at a lower valuation, or more income than the market offers at a more attractive valuation. And, you know, the, the bond market is very homogeneous. You know, if you're talking, uh, looking at AAA bonds, AA bonds, single-A bonds, Bonds of a similar quality move with an eighth of a point of each other. Right. It's very homogeneous. The stock market is heterogeneous. The S&P uh, might be 2,100 as we speak, but there are some stocks that might be 2,400 already and some stocks that are 1,700 on the index. And we're trying to be long the 1,700 index type equivalents and be short of or out the 2,100. So when you say some stocks are 2,400, you mean they're very pricey and the stocks are 1,700 are trading at a discount relative to, to what, we, uh, we, what we perceive to be the underlying asset value of the business. We've been speaking with Leon Cooperman, founder of Omega Advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the rest of our discussion. You could see that on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, and SoundCloud. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or uh, follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business. I'm Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast portion of our show. I know I say this every week and you guys all make fun of me, but really, I have a very special guest this week, someone who I've been actually chasing for quite a while. Lee Cooperman, a legend on Wall Street, uh, ran Goldman Sachs Research Department for 20 plus years practically and then set up Goldman Sachs Asset Management Division. Um, his hedge fund, Omega Partners, now manages about $10 billion, just under. Is that about right? 9.3. 9.3. Uh, long-term returns in excess of uh, f- about 450 basis points over the S&P 500 o- over, over a long period of time. I, I, I really have so many questions for you. Let me start with some stuff that I we skipped through on, on the radio portion. So I get the sense from you that Columbia – extremely formative to you as an investor, Columbia Business School. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, uh, I studied under uh, Dr. Roger Murray, who was a real practitioner. If you're familiar with the tech security analysis uh, by Graham and Dodd, which is the kind of the Bible in the The classic, industry. absolutely. And there's a section there where there's like a ratio anal- analysis where they had about uh, 20 different ratios over 10 years to study a company's financial progress. I remember from my uh, uh, paper for security analysis, I did a study contrasting J.P. Stevens with Burlington Industries. And I had this 10-year ratio history, 20 different ratios. And I had a transposition in one of maybe 200 statistics in the exhibit. And Dr. Murray caught it and circled it in red. (laughs) This was the kind of guy he was. Eagle eye, sharp. Eagle eye, sharp, understood the business. And, you know, his... His love of his of his uh, 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 vocation 
rubbed off on me. And, you know, it was a great business. You know, where else? I mean, I'm getting paid for enjoying what I do. I mean, it's my vocation. It's my advocation. And historically, it's been a means of supplementing my income. Because if you invest intelligently, you could do very well. So I kind of, I, I, I love the game. Uh, um, I get in early, I stay late. Uh, yeah, your your work ethic. D- Doug Cass, we discussed Doug earlier. Doug called you the James Brown of the investing business, the hardest working man in the industry. Maybe, and, that's, maybe that's because I have an average IQ, so i got to work harder than somebody else who's smarter. <laughs> I get but, the sense that that's not the well, case. Well, you know, I get in around 6.30, 6.45 in the morning, and mm-hmm. I, uh, I tend to be an information hog, so I go out pretty much every night of the week with other money managers or companies to try and basically uh, develop insights into my investments uh, and always try to learn from people that are uh, probably smarter than me or equally adept at what they do and we exchange ideas. But uh, I'm totally committed. I, I believe in the concept of total commitment. And I believe my investors are owed my total commitment and sure. fidelity. And uh, uh, I, I'm never striving to be number one, but I want to deliver a competitive return to my investors. I do not want to get rich underperforming. So when I started my business uh, 24 years ago, I had an exhibit, which is still my exhibit today in my pitch book, and it says, and I tell people, when, when I meet in a prospective investor, they say, well, if I invest with you, what am I going to earn? I would always say the same thing. I don't know what you're going to earn, but let me tell you what will make me happy. Because what makes me happy doesn't make you happy. I'd rather you not invest with me because that's the basis of a flawed relationship. Sure. So my objectives are, number one, no down years. And I've had four down years in 24 always came roaring back, but I've had down years. Uh, that doesn't mean you change your objectives. That's still my objective, not to have a down year. Number two, I want to beat the S&P 500 net of my fees. I don't want to make a lot of money underperforming some mindless benchmark. Right. Number three, I don't run a leverage portfolio. So I'd say you know, 10 to 12% net return to the investor would make me happy. We've done 14% net, so I'm, I'm fine there. And fourth, I'd like to have less volatility than the market. So I like to outperform the market while being less volatile than the market. And if you buy into that value proposition, come invest with me, and I can assure you that we have a total alignment of interest. Uh, so, you know, we manage $9.3 billion, 23% of that is general partner capital. So, uh, you know, we— So uh, you're a big investor in your own my firm. Team. You, my, you, we, we, you eat your own cooking. Eat my own cooking. The team eats their own cooking. We have uh, 49 of us in the firm, 25 are general partners— they all have money in the firm uh, uh, as investors, and uh, what I'd like to say is we prosper the most when we get it right, and we get hurt the most when we get it wrong, and we're not in an asset-capturing mission. We're in a mission of trying to generate capital gains and have a total alignment of interest. You, you mentioned your down years, and you mentioned something, and, and when I was—so we do a lot of research before I sit down with, with a Lee Cooperman, <coughs> and, and one of the things I read was really quite astonishing. So— one of your down years was 08. You were still less volatile than the market. The S&P Not was down a lot. The S&P lot. was down 38%, you were down 35%. But what I wanted to ask you about in 08 and 09, every hedge fund I read about was gating their funds, meaning they have an uh, an option to not let their investors withdraw money. And you refused to do do that. You said, "We're ungated. If you're not happy and you want to take your money, it's your money, take it. Yeah, I have, uh, I think it was the New York Times, did a little story about that time. And That's where a, I found that. They, they had a picture of me, and under the picture said they'd have to load me into my grave before I gated capital or did not honor a high watermark. There were two aspects of 08. 
uh, I'm sure your, your, your listeners understand, but uh, one of the negatives of the hedge fund, and it's fair, by the way, uh, uh, compensation schemes is a so-called high watermark. In other words, if sure. you get paid for appreciation then lose money, you got to make back the losses before you get paid again. Uh, in other so, words, you start at 100 bucks and you're getting 2 and 20 It drops down to 80 the 20% performance fee doesn't show up again until you're over, over that 100 uh, again. Exactly. And a lot of money managers elected to close up in 08 because they got way below their high water and they could not make an incentive fee. And I kind of feel that's morally wrong because uh, it's one thing if an investor says, look, I'm scared about the environment. I want my, or, I, or, or I, I'm scared about you, the money manager. I want my money back. It's their money. They should get it back. Sure. Okay. Um, but to voluntarily give somebody back their money and say I'm closing up and retiring because I can't make money is wrong because the high watermark is an asset of the investor and you should not deprive that investor of the asset as long as he or she is willing to continue to take the risk. And so uh, uh, closing up and giving back money, I think, was wrong. And the other thing that— And, and then, by the way, relaunching under a different name. Yeah, I, There's some huge— so, Some of that happens. When you I, started, I, there were—you know, I'm going to quote Jim Chanos. Back when—you know, we look at how many hedge funds are not generating alpha, and Jim Chanos had said, well, when he launched, there were 100 or so hedge funds, and they were all really profitable. Now there's 10,000 hedge funds, and it's the same 100— <laughs> that are generating most of the uh, alpha. I, I, I can't generalize, uh, uh, but you know, I've, I've used this as a handout. Uh, I think a very, very distinguished uh, person, for, for good reason, uh, Carol Loomis, sure. who has been advising uh, Warren Buffett on the writing of his annual report for, I don't know, 50 years, and I think 1971 uh, wrote a very negative article about hedge funds, uh, focusing on their performance from 1968 to 1970, where all the hedge funds got murdered, with the exception of Steinhardt, Fine, and Berkowitz, which was up 5% in that period. And she kind of rang the death knell for hedge funds. Uh, and if you go back and look, as, as distinguished and smart as she is, and she is distinguished and she is smart, couldn't have been more wrong. The largest hedge fund in 1968 was A.W. Jones at $200 million. <laughs> okay, That's uh, amazing. Uh, and the whole industry might have been a billion dollars, if you're lucky. And today, I don't know, the hedge Over fund- Over $3 trillion. $3 trillion, and you said 10,000 Bri- hedge funds. Bri- Bridgewater has yeah. almost $150 yeah. billion. So, uh, AQR is $100 plus billion. I think billion. It's, it's all about performance. If you could deliver the performance, you'll have a business. And so what happened in 2008 is uh, uh, the debilitating year- uh, the five years before 2008, let's say 2002 to 2007, hedge funds were outperforming conventional money managers, mm-hmm. and they attracted a lot of money. Okay, and what happened in 2008 is people got scared. They said, oh, I didn't realize you could lose money by being in a hedge fund. The <laughs> fact right. that the average hedge fund was only down 16%, less than half the S&P didn't impress people. They say, gee, I didn't realize you could lose money. So they asked for their money back. And the hedge fund industry shot themselves in the foot by gaining capital. Right. There's nothing, no better way to get money from an individual by telling me you're closed. Right. You know, like Madoff was telling people he's right. closed and took it's all the money. It's a great We want uh, that which we can't have. Okay, exactly. That well phrased. And uh, there's no better way of scaring people than telling you you can't have your money back. So even though the hedge fund industry performed their role by being down less than half of the industry, by gaining capital, they scared everybody. 
but we didn't gate. We had about six, seven hundred million dollars of redemptions. Every dollar was met for cash, no gating, no in kind, and life went on. And we worked very hard to recover our high water mark, uh, uh, which we did. You know, uh, parent. P.S. Two thousand nine, you were up about fifty percent. Fifty four percent. You doubled the market performance. Yeah, uh, well, that, that's been our tendency. Where we underperform, the history has been that we generally significantly outperform uh, coming out. Uh, we, uh, you know, we were up a week before Lehman Brothers hit in two thousand eight. We were up on the year. We totally missed really because yeah. the market was down about uh, I want to say about twenty something percent. No, no, no I, I, I think it was less than that before Lehman hit. Before Lehman, okay, fifteen percent, uh, maybe but, less than that. But but, but the, I recall that point in two thousand eight was a negative year. I have to look up the exact. very. Mo- I think much more modestly. I'd have okay. to look it up as well. I'm gonna have I to take a look. Mo- I'm doing more it from and we totally misgaged the effect of Lehman's insolvency in the market. And the fact that there were a lot of people along with us, including the government, is irrelevant. My investors looked to me to protect their capital. And it was my responsibility. It was my era. Okay, and the only good thing I can say is we stuck with the guns. We came back 54% in 2009, wow. 24% in 2010, flat in 11, uh, 34 in 12, and 38 in 13. And this year, uh, the, uh, last year we had a bad year. My worst year relative to the market, we were flattish, and the S&P was up. But this year we're about two and a half times the S&P. We're up about uh, seven half, eight percent uh, But it's a tough game. It's gotten tougher. And a lot of competition. A lot of competition. But you, you even still with this competition, you've managed to put up some. Those are all-star numbers, even with a flat year or, or an underperforming year. That That's a heck of a run, that seven-year uh well, Set it's, of numbers. Uh, you know, we've been blessed by a trended bull market. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the uh, and on the right side of it. Yeah, we we've had a positive view. Uh, we try to add value to portfolios in five ways. And the first, as I mentioned before, is stocks are high risk financial assets, short term bonds and cash low risk financial assets. And we spend a great deal of time uh, trying to study the market. I have a terrific uh, partner, our vice chairman Steve Einhorn. Oh sure. Uh, he worked. I, I actually one of my better, my best hire in my career. I hired him at a Prudential Insurance. He worked directly under me for twelve years at Goldman. I retired from Goldman the end in ninety one. He retired from Goldman the end in ninety eight. Not with the intent of joining me. He wasn't sure what he was going to do. And when I read about his retirement, I called him up. We had dinner, and uh, I got him to rejoin me as vice chairman. And he spends the bulk of his time on the macro big picture. Does a wonderful job for the firm. And we have a whole policy group that meets every Monday to discuss the global economy and Fed and valuation. So let's talk about that because I, I, I'm fascinated by your process. Uh, what, what are those Monday morning meetings like? Well, you know, we get, we get together at 8.15 in the morning. Uh, our head of macro trading is on the committee. Actually, we have two people in macro trading on the committee. And they're studying uh, China, Japan, currency, fixed income. Uh, we have a consulting economist that participates in the meeting, uh, Steve and I, and our two co-directors of research. And we, 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 it's like kind of putting together a heuristic model about the world. You know, uh, what looks mispriced? Uh, you know, what looks overvalued? When is the Fed going to move? What is the Fed move going to be? Uh, uh, what is gonna, what's the impact on the market? You, would you rather be in uh, Japan or Europe or United States? Uh, what's the return profile in each of these markets? Uh, where do you see Fed funds uh, at the end of 2016? And we're trying to find, you know, where the intelligent bet is. So we're doing well this year in part because we have money in Japan, we have money in Europe. We're short to short end of the yield curve. Uh, and we've been short uh, the uh, yen and been short the euro. That was my qu- about to ask you: Are you long Japan, short the yen, and and how do you affect that trade? 
Well, in the, in the, in the cash market, uh, uh, we don't need to borrow money. We have plenty of uh, uh, you know capital. And uh, we basically are, we don't do a lot of individual stocks in Japan. So they're, not to my liking, in all honesty, with long the topics in Nikkei, Uh, as opposed to individual stocks because we don't have a lot of stock expertise, but we've Mm -hmm. had a strong macro view of Japan. uh, Don't have a lot of Japanese stock expertise. No, but we have a view of the Japanese market, so we've expressed that bet through the indices. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, we kind of, you know, you have QE Infinity there, Mm -hmm. many globally competitive companies selling at very reasonable valuations with their multiples in Japan are quite low relative to their interest rate structure. And we believe Europe is several years behind the United States in terms of the economic recovery. Right now, it's been buffeted by what's going on in Greece. But our general belief is there'll be an agreement uh, with Greece. They're not going to exit. And if they did exit other than a short-term adjustment, the reality is Greece is two-tenths of 1% of global GDP. um, And it would not be as significant as the market seems to make it, make it out. And I think that they'll stay in the EU because Germany will basically uh, compromise. You, you mentioned uh, Steinhardt earlier. Um, I believe his firm, he's an advisor to Wisdom Tree. Is that right? Yeah, that's a personal investment he made. I don't know that much about it. but uh, Their big product over the past few years has been their hedged yen long Japan product, which has just blown up. It's become a, a huge I mean, He's winner. made a great investment in Wisdom Tree. Uh, Jonathan Steinberg has done a great job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have the pleasure of knowing him. I knew his dad. But basically, Michael had the opportunity to back him, and Michael made a great investment decision. I think Michael has done extremely well in that investment. Uh, I don't know to the, say the least. I, I don't know the details, but I think he's made a lot of money. So let's keep working our way through some of the questions uh, I, I missed. You mentioned uh, Mario Gabelli uh, was with you at, at Columbia. Who else uh, was in your class of Columbia? Well, the two guys I've made remain most, most closely in touch with uh, were classmates as Art Sandberg. Pequot, Pequot, and what's he doing now? Is... Uh, he's uh, doing uh, venture capital in a major way, and he's, uh, I'm pleased to report he's extremely happy, doing very well, very successful financially, to very charitable, just a very high-quality human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Mario and I have made remained uh, closely in touch for 50 years. Uh, I have great admiration for Mario. I, I like people that deal well with their success, that remember where they came from uh, and are prepared to give back to society. And the nice thing I like to say, and I've said this often about Mario, uh, the only thing that's changed with Mario, other than a lot of digits <laughs> after his net worth, is the color of his hair. When I knew Mario, he was a redhead. Now he's got a full head of gray hair. He weighs less, I think, today than he weighed when he went to Columbia Business School. That's which, impressive. Which I would say, I'd love to be able to say, I can say, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit heavier. But he's, a, he's a, a great person, great human being, and a terrific investor. And has built a fabulous business. I think they manage over $50 billion. Yeah, fantastic Runs a very successful public Yamco. company yep. and uh, very generous. And uh, he and I uh, get together, I'd say, at least a half a dozen times a year. In fact, I invited him. He's not Jewish, as you can tell from the name. Gabelli. I took <laughs> I took him on a, a UGA mission to Cuba uh-huh. about 18 months ago with his lovely wife, Regina. Uh, and then he and I and our wives went on a, a about 10-day around-the-world trip 
uh, on one of these. Uh, it was sponsored by Columbia, where they chartered a plane for 70 or 80 people, and they have a few lecturers and a doctor that goes along with you, and mm. the plane lands. The next thing you see, your luggage is in your hotel room, and you put your luggage out your your hotel room door, and it's gone. And so it was very nice. To, we went to Turkey, uh, Egypt, uh, uh, Jaipur, Agra, India, the lost city of Petra and Jordan, and uh, um, Monaco, Morocco, it was very interesting. We spent that time together. Now, he's a global investor. He's all over the world on a fairly regular basis. Big transformation for him because he used to say it was strictly United States only. But uh, you know, Now he's a big emerging market, guys. Yeah, but you are, are famous for not really liking to take a vacation. Well, uh, let me say this. That, you say, uh, or let me rephrase that. The best part about going on vacation is coming home. Was that I would you? absolutely acknowledge. <laughs> And the vacation I just referenced with Mario, the best part of the vacation was as follows. I'm standing in the Valley of the Kings in Luxor, Egypt, looking at that many, 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 many thousand-year-old Sphinx statue. Mm -hmm. My cell phone goes off at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's 7 a.m. New York time. It's my trading desk calling to tell me that our largest position, Atlas Energy, just agreed to be taken over 40% above the last sale was acquired, yeah. by a Chevron. Mm -hmm. and I would say that was the highlight of the trip. Not taking anything along. <laughs> not taking so anything. it wasn't the Sphinx. It, it was a 40% premium it's, it's, on a takeover. It, and a takeover that happened to be your largest position. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm I, I kind of in touch with the office all the time. And, uh, but, you know, let me say this, and I give my wife great credit. I have two wonderful kids. I have three great-grandchildren. I have a terrific marriage. And uh, I don't think I would be successful if I didn't have a successful marriage, if I didn't have terrific kids. And I've had a very balanced life. And I've always had that wisdom to know when to go home and cut short that business trip or not go away to balance it. Yes, there's a perfect example. I was supposed to go to a business dinner, and I sensed, you know, for the last two weeks, I've been at every night of the week. It's a time to call up the missus and say, I'll meet you at Arturo's for uh, pizza for dinner if you're free, and that was the right thing to do. Down uh, near Canal Street? That no, no, that was uh, Arturo's in uh, uh, Maplewood, New Jersey. Okay, and so you're just a regular pizza I am, and beer uh, sort of guy. I am uh, I'm a regular guy. I have not learned how to live rich. So let, let's go back to that. The The plumber's wrench, is that is that a myth or is that true? No, uh, well, I guess an analogy, I would say that uh, when I started Omega in 1992, uh, I hung personally every picture in our office, and I don't ask anybody to do anything that I'm not prepared to do myself. I take great pride of ownership. I like to make sure the office looks proper, and you know, I just ask people to basically be committed to the client's interests uh, uh, and uh, basically know what you're doing and to uh, work hard and to uh, be knowledgeable. And I try to set an example. Uh, like I said a moment ago, I don't ask people to do what I'm not prepared to do myself. So, so, and this goes back to Doug, said, so he shared some insights with me about you. Because Doug, so for those people who don't know, Doug Cass runs Seabreeze Partners mm -hmm. and, and is very articulate and writes a lot. And, and Doug said, Lee never wanted to forget his roots that he comes from. Um, a, a dad who's a plumber, and he used to walk around in his briefcase with this heavy, giant plumber's wrench. And I, I didn't know if he was pulling my leg. Yeah, I, th I think he was. I mean, I don't recall. I mean, I, I carry enough weight around as it is. But, 
and principally saying is right, but I, I'd never carried around a plumber's wrench. Now, I've used a plumber's wrench. I've cleaned, okay. out, I've cleaned out stoppages and used a wire. Wait, so you're out. cleaning toilets in Omega? Is that what you're telling uh, me? No, but uh, now what I do is I put a sign on the wall, please shut the light off when you're finished. You know, uh, right. <laughs> you, know. you would rather give the money away than just waste it frivolously. Yeah, I... Uh, That's the motivation respect. behind this, I, I think sense. there was something I made note of, um, and... Uh, Go ahead, I Greg. I want to quote it uh, correctly, and I really don't associate this with the person who said it, okay? But he says, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. That's that's an okay. interesting you sentiment. You who said that? Pablo Picasso. Really? You know, I thought he was a bit of a womanizer, but basically... Uh, you know, I uh, having taken the giving pledge and having taken care of my kids and all, and I, I, I'm not complaining, I'm not bragging because the people I know have a similar orientation. Philosophy, yeah. But you know, uh, I'm working for charity, okay. Uh, uh, so you look at all the money you raise at this point is going to go to a higher purpose. That's the yeah, thing. I would like, and I would just like to make sure it is properly uh, utilized. You know, uh, I, I, I've worked too hard for this money. I want to make sure that it accomplishes some end to it. So, so let's talk about that a little bit, because that's a, a a question that I see all the time. How can one make sure that the philanthropic gifts that are made are actually well, you're relying, put to good use? Other, you're relying upon other people. Look, there's no greater example of that than uh, Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very comp- complex individual. And he basically says that I'm the Warren Buffett of investing. I'm not the Warren Buffett of charitable giving. <laughs> right. And when the time comes to give away my money and I will give it away, I want the Warren Buffett of charitable giving giving it away. And I think he went to Bill and Melinda Gates. He said, look, you're a lot younger than me. I trust you. I really get my jollies by making it, not because I'm greedy, because I like to make investment decisions. I don't much care about charitable activities. So if you leave Microsoft and spend full time on charitable giving, I'll take my 60 or $70 billion and put it into the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I mean, what human being does that? You know? that, it's, that was an amazing yeah. gift. He says, I trust Bill and Melinda Gates, and that's not my forte. My forte is investing, not charitable giving. And so uh, in a sense, to answer your question, I tried to make a judgment, just like I try to make a judgment to invest in the right company with the right management, that they have the right motivations and they have the smarts and the skill set and the common sense to do a good job. I'm trying to support those organizations that I think have a common interest, a common goal, where the person I'm investing that responsibility in has the same passion about it than in, in, in their organization than I have in my business. So Jennifer Rabb, uh, president of Hunter College, uh, mm-hmm. worked me over pretty good and <laughs> went up giving $25 million to Hunter. Uh, My uh, mom went there as well. Uh, Glenn uh, uh, Hubbard of uh, Columbia Business School has worked me over nicely, and I've given him $33 million. And so You've also so endowed, you've done more than just that. You've endowed chairs. You've yeah. given scholarships to them. You have a very extensive relationship Columbia with Columbia. Of, uh, they're, they're not shy in asking. I told, <laughs> I told the administration of Columbia that they ought to basically give a few leaves out of their book to the UJA. The UJA is notorious. Columbia is uh, maybe even better. Really? That, that's yeah, fascinating yeah. to, to yeah, hear. Yeah. So, so you mentioned a little bit about you investigate philanthropy the way you investigate stocks. Let's talk about that a bit. What, what is your process? How do you identify and evaluate a given stock prior to making well, a purchase? Well, we have a team, you know, and I, I am just one member of the team, but uh, I generally would say that uh, we have 17 analysts, 
it's their job to mine the areas of expertise that they focus on and to uh, capture profits out of the market. So the analyst's job is to propose, and we have a stock selection committee at Omega that disposes. So Propose uh, and dispose. So the well, analyst, the so analyst, that bubbles up, and then this committee the chooses amongst that. analyst writes his report, proposes the idea. The stock selection committee, which consists of the co-directors of research, uh, Steve Einhorn, vice chairman of the firm, myself, and a couple of the senior macro people, and we vet the idea. And uh, every report is required to have... A price objective in the recommendation, a downside risk. Um, and uh, if we buy the stock, it's implicitly we've accepted the return and risk profile. Mm-hmm. If the stock declines to the risk point or below, the analyst becomes a secondary input into the decision-making going forward and is taken over by what we call the cesspool committee. You okay. know what a cesspool is. That's where all the junk goes. Right. And so uh, I chair the cesspool committee and we'll bring in people from the outside to help us vet the idea, uh, and we could decide either to double down, uh, meaning average down in mm-hmm. the position. Do you do sell. that often? Does that happen frequently? It, it varies. At times we sell, at times we just sit pat, and at times we uh, basically double down. And it really depends upon the characteristic of uh, the company, the dividend yield, the asset value, the multiple, uh, uh, what the overall market is doing, you know, a, a rising mm-hmm. tide lifts the ships, a receding tide lowers the ships, as I said before, mm-hmm. and sometimes the stock is down because of the market, and you want to separate out the noise. And um, um, so we, we have, like I said, an investment policy committee that sets policy for the firm. We have a stock selection committee that responds to the analyst. And then, of course, a certain amount of the activity is top down where uh, I would uh, or Steve Einhorn or other people on the policy committee would have an idea about a sector. And we would go to the analyst and ask them to look at a particular area. So now let's talk about a stock that's working out. It's It's one decision when you're buying something at X and now it's – down 10 or 20 percent and situation changes. Very difficult. If you're a value investor, if you like something at 10, you should like it more at 9 or 8. But there are those times where something is tangibly changed and the circumstances have changed and you got to make a different decision. So the way I'd like to answer the question is we sell it, you know, a typical question from a consultant that comes in your shop, what is your sell discipline? Mm -hmm. Okay. And I say, we sell the stock for one of four reasons. The first and the highest quality reason is we bought a stock at X because we thought it was worth X plus 30 or 40%. It goes up 30%. Nothing has changed. We sell. So even even once it hits your price objective, even if there's no change in circumstances? No, if there is no change in circumstances. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a perfect example. I bought 25 million shares of Boston Scientific in between 5 and $6 a share. We thought it was worth 12 or 13 mm-hmm. It got there. We didn't see circumstances that changed. We sold. Unfortunately, it's a mistake, but I think it's about 18 or 19 now. Mm-hmm. Okay, but so the first reason, just generically, is it is always an uh, a full sale, or is it ever well? Let's sell half we'll of it trim and see it, what happens. It varies. It varies mm-hmm. again, depending upon the company, depending upon the characteristics. And look, I believe in looking at charts. You know, uh, the, the you do, Bob, Bob. Absolutely, is one of the ingredients because I think the stock market's a highly quality leading indicator. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, oftentimes when a company comes out with bad earnings, the stock was down before the before the earnings, and they come away with blow away earnings. The stock is up before that. And the market has a way of knowing. There's some secretary it, typing a press release for some CEO who's got a cousin or got a wife who's got a relative or whatever. So the There's market, a discounting mechanism. It's exactly, out. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the but first, you're not, you, we would never consider you a technical analyst or a chartist. You're not making buy and sell decisions no, based not. on, because Doug said, Doug Cass said, 
Ask Lee if he uh, believes in voodoo. Uh. No, we are deep dive fundamental investors. We mm -hmm. work hard to develop our information, but I, I'll look at a chart. It mm -hmm. gives a confirmation of what you think. Sure. And it raises a question when the chart's going the wrong way, you know, because again, the stock market is a leading indicator, and so uh, stocks tend to give you some indication of what's going on. So the first reason we sell a stock, which is the highest quality reason, we bought something at X, we thought it was worth something more than X, it appreciates, nothing has changed, we sell. Second reason we sell something is I tell my guys, stay and gals, stay on top of your companies. Not everything unfolds the way you anticipated. So talk to suppliers, talk to competitors, talk to companies, you know, uh, follow what's going on in the economy. And if you get the sense things are unfolding differently than you anticipated, let's sell before we get murdered. Because mm -hmm. it's hard to make up 20, 30% losses sure. in this kind of environment. The third reason we sell is we are not the Federal Reserve Board. We cannot print money. So sometimes you develop a new idea that has a much better ratio of reward to risk than something you currently own. So we'll rotate out of something that has got more modest attraction to something that we think has greater attraction. And the fourth reason we sell is we change our view of the market, okay? And, you know, you could deal with futures or options for a while, but at the end of the day, if you're going from bullish to bearish and you want to take your exposure from 90 or 100% down to 50 or 60%, you got to sell inventory. Mm -hmm. And so you sell a stock because you want to get out of harm's way. And we did a poor job in 2008 because we missed the significance of Lehman. But by and large, those are the four reasons we sell. Price appreciation, hit our target, we get out. The second is things are not unfolding as we anticipate to get out before you get murdered. Third reason we sell is we found a new idea better than the one that we have. We rotate cost, around. Sure. And the fourth reason is we've changed our view of the market. We want to reduce exposure. Hmm, that's quite fascinating. Do you generally, you mentioned a little bit of hedging. Do you generally hedge? Because from what I've been looking at, you're pretty yeah. much... I would say we tend to be long-oriented, more long than a typical hedge fund, which has served us well the last five or six years. Um, uh, I would say that our short positions range from 5 to 15% to the fund. Uh, we do not run a big gross book and a small net book. Uh, mm -hmm. I find that very difficult because we tend to want to know our companies. So we have about 90 positions at any point in time. We have uh, 17 analysts that divide 90 by 17. I'm asking my colleagues to know five or six companies better than somebody else, mm -hmm. which uh, means we have that luxury of knowing our companies really well. Uh, which I want, you know. Uh, Wall Street has changed from the time I was on Wall Street today. Wall Street has become a distribution business, mm -hmm. okay? Sure, they would like you as their client to make money, but their primary objective is distributing securities. And also, the regulatory environment, appropriately, has created a level playing field, and uh, they'll give you the information when they give it to everybody else at the same time. So we really want to do our own research. And Wall Street has largely become an access and underwriting business. They'll have conferences and seminars and management meetings, and they'll provide access. Luckily, we're large enough to get access in our own, but we do go to all these conferences, and that's where Wall Street's helpful. And then they underwrite securities, and if there's something we're interested in, uh, we would hope to get a good allocation. Uh, uh, we tend not to be flippers. We tend to be investors. Uh, and uh, so by uh, having a good relationship with Wall Street, we tend to get good allocations where we're interested. We don't just flip deals for sake of flipping deals. So you mentioned your investors, not flippers. Typically, how long do you, not, not, not even syndicate or IPOs, but something that your team finds that you're enthusiastic about, how long do you well, not hold Well, half asset base is taxable, so you know we try mm -hmm. to go long term. And we actually have a tax uh, advantage fund where we represent we go long term. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say 75% of our inventory is uh, made for investment with uh, horizons of over a year. Mm -hmm. 
not quite the Warren Buffett horizon, which almost is permanent, but uh, and I respect and admire that. You know, most people miss really Buffett's record. You know, they criticize he underperformed this year or he's in line with the Do market. you remember in 99, 2000, all, all I heard was this Warren Buffett guy, he's done. His best years are behind well, him. This really guy's a bump. different. You know, Warren Buffett's record is great uh, pre-tax. Mm-hmm. It's better than great after tax. Because he's so long-term. Yeah. You know, he's not looking to buy this year's hot stock, flip it out, and buy next year's hot stock. Mm-hmm. He's looking for after tax returns. And I forget the annual meeting, the annual report year, maybe 25 years ago, maybe even 30, he showed an example. If you had a great money manager that bought this year's hot stock, made 15%, sold it, and bought yesterday, next year's hot stock, made 15%, sold it, where you found a great company that was a great investment, held it for 20 or 30 years and made 15% a year, what did you have after tax at the end of 30 years was thousands of times difference. Right. The flipper is giving yeah. up a third of it, yeah. 30% of his profits. Yeah. I wish I could be as disciplined as him. Unfortunately, the, the, the business and client demands don't allow completely for that, but we're sympathetic to that. Uh, well, you know, we've seen the holding period shrink and shrink and shrink, but it sounds like you're still longer well, than many. I would say, you know, uh, in 2000, I remember uh, my investors, many of my investors coming to me and said, Lee, you're doing very well. We're making a lot of money, but we really don't want to pay the taxes. Do you have anything tax advantaged? And I said, Jesus, that's music to my ears. Great I'm, the idea. Large, I'm the largest investment in Omega. I'll tell you what, you know, and I'm not, this is not a commercial. I'm not looking to invest this. I said, if you give me a three year commitment period, mm-hmm. okay. We have three-year commitment period. I'll give you a a one-in-fifteen compensation scheme and a five percent hurdle rate. And uh, uh, if something happens to you, the investor, in that three-year period, your stake can get out immediately. If something happens to me, the money manager, and you want to get out, you can get out immediately. And I'll represent for that package seventy-five percent or more of the gains will be long-term capital gains. I believe from memory, uh, and I think it's pretty accurate, we've beaten the S&P by 1,000 basis points. Wow. And 100% of the gains are long-term capital gains. And that's for people that are tax sensitive. So, so let's go over that. One in 15 versus and the we standard actually two raised in 20. It because we had a lot of demand. We raised it maybe five years later to one and a half and 20. Still have a 5% hurdle rate. Five, meaning what? Meaning? The first 5% we don't get compensated on in terms of incentive fee. So there's no, no so the, the, the 20 five, doesn't count. Yeah, it's, a, it's 20 above the five. And I think we beat the S&P by almost 1,000 basis points wow. in that period. That's money and, well spent, and, uh, huh? And uh, over uh, uh, 100% of the gains were long-term capital gains. And the best way to understand the product is we buy a stock, okay? We intend to hold it for a year. Sometimes you get a gain much more quickly, and it appreciates to a sell point more quickly. For our regular fund, where we don't represent tax efficiency, we'll sell it. Right. For this fund, what we'll do is use options to age the position to go long term. So you put a collar on it or you just marry a put no, to we'll, it? Or? We'll, we'll, no. We'll, well, puts are basically increasing the long position. We'll sell calls against the position Okay. until we go long term. And you have to sell calls that are slightly out of the money to avoid uh, stopping the holding period. There's certain IRS requirements. Gotcha. We, so we, in order to make 12 to. full months. That, that's fascinating, and that sounds like that's done really, really well. Yeah, it has, yeah. Is it, what percentage of uh, your assets are, are in the tax uh, advantaged? That one product is probably about 11% of our assets. All right. and um, Best bargain in the Western world. In it's, it sounds like it's based on the performance plus the, the, the advantation fee. That, that hurdle is something that... That's not very typical in, a, in, in the well, hedge fund world. Well, in a low return world, it's uh, it's a significant uh, benefit to the investor. 
There was, I think, probably the markets adequately priced today that I would be. Ha I would think the market, if it gave you six to eight percent, including dividends, uh, uh, over the next five years, that would be a good return. And so the idea of not getting compensated for the first five percent is a pretty significant benefit. Sure, to say to say the least. You, you mentioned um, Warren Buffett. Not too long ago, you took a trip to uh, their annual meeting. Yeah, I, uh, I did. Uh, Tell us about that. Well, you know, look, the guy is, he's the man, right? Uh, he's, <laughs> the, he's the guru. Uh, I didn't learn very much because if you study Buffett, you know, one of the things I did is now we're going back 35 years ago. I was the guy at Goldman Sachs that used to send around Warren Buffett's annual report to all my partners at Goldman Sachs saying, keep an eye on this guy. He's going to be famous <laughs> one day. Good, good call. And, uh, this was well before Goldman had that special relationship uh, where uh, this is way before 2008 where Warren invested directly in the firm. Mm -hmm. So I've always had a very high regard for my read his annual report cover to cover. And if you read his annual report cover to cover, you don't have to go to the annual meeting. But I went to the annual meeting uh, because in part Columbia asked me to speak at a dinner the Friday night before the annual meeting uh, dinner. But, you know, the, the man is to be admired. There's no person alive in the investment business has more quotable lines than Warren. Uh, and his record is uh, unbelievable. And uh, you have to admire and respect the guy. Um, so uh, you flew to a recent meeting with a, a rock star collection of people, um, Doug Cass, Marty Cohen, Steve Roth, Harvey Eisen, Miles Nadell, what was that? Was was that a recent trip or? Uh, no, that was in connection with the annual report. The, the, uh, the annual, annual meeting. meeting. Of, uh, and and what was that crew like to to go well, to Berkshire? You know, with? Look, Doug's a catalytic, uh, bright, thoughtful guy. Mm -hmm. uh, Harvey Eisen, uh, different character, but also uh, thoughtful. Steve Roth is a major, accomplished guy. Uh, Vornado uh, Realty. Uh, uh, that's a monster huge, company. Huge success. Uh, and these are all, in, you know, interesting individuals. Miles and Dell also is a self-made guy. Uh, MDC spoken partners, to for a while. MDC sure. partners, and has done extremely well over the years. Um, and you know, each individual has their own strengths and weaknesses. And uh, I like learning from people, listening to people, seeing how they respond to my questions. Uh, and uh, that was, makes life interesting, to to say the least. Um, so let me let me shift gears a little bit on you. Um, Let's talk a little bit about books. One of the things Buffett and Munger said. Very short said, conversation. Because uh, you're all, you're reading so I'm much. I'm reading a book every day, but mm -hmm. I'm reading a book of reports from my 17 analysts. Uh, um, you know, uh, I wish I read more. Uh, I'm very proud of my oldest granddaughter. My God, she reads all the time. Mm -hmm. and a, a fabulous writer. But um, book reading is not my uh, major suit. Uh, You're drilling down into company reports uh, and, and research between reports. Between the Financial and Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, research reports. You know, uh, right now I'm uh, reading books about prosecutorial abuse in America. Okay. You know, having received the subpoena that I got to deal with and been mystified by what the government is thinking about. Yeah, so Can't do you, talk about it. I was going to say, we, I don't think we really can discuss that. I, I don't think your lawyers would be uh, happy with well, it. Well, we told our investors is that there's nothing wrong we've been done. We've responded to the subpoena of the government, and the government is analyzing the response, and we're quite comfortable when they analyze the response. They'll see that nothing wrong was done. We do our homework. We work very hard. We do fundamental research. And that, and that is that. So we'll leave that, uh, that, that question uh, alone. Um, you mentioned one of the professors uh, at Columbia as a mentor. 
Who who else were were some of your early mentors? Well, you know, you you learn a lot of different things with a lot of different people. Uh, on the trading side, uh, the guy that was a, a major name and institution in his own right, Bob Mnuchin, was in charge of trading uh, at Yale, Goldman Sachs. At Goldman Sachs, unusual at that time, a Yale graduate uh, ran trading at Goldman Sachs. Uh, L. J. Tannenbaum, who's deceased, the Bob is still very much alive. Thankfully, a great guy. Uh, L. J. Tannenbaum ran arbitrage. Uh, Gustav Levy, uh, you saw him in action. I worked directly with him on a number of assignments. Uh, he passed away in 1976. Uh, a real dynamo. Man got in at 7 o'clock in the morning, kept two secretaries busy. There wasn't a charity in New York that he did not work with and support and help. And so you learned about charitable instincts, giving back from people like Gus Levy, John Whitehead, who's deceased, uh, John Weinberg, uh, Ace Greenberg. You know, you just watch people in action and... Uh, you know, um, you learn, and you and and, and you, you mature yourself. I, I have a family foundation I set up, I think, in uh, 1985. And that long ago. Yeah. Well, when 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 my income started to exceed my cost of living, and I started to build up savings, I was really committed to give back. Um, and again, as I said before, I don't want to picture myself as being different than anyone else. The guys that are in my category all have a similar view. You know. Uh, uh, I have a great admiration for uh, Ken Langone, Stan Druckenmiller, and Michael Steinhardt, uh, uh, um, Bill Ackman, uh, John Paulson, uh, and Dan Loeb. I, I apologize for people whose name I left out because there's so many of them right. that are giving back, that work hard because they have a professional instinct mm-hmm. and then take their financial success and share with others less fortunate. So I shouldn't mention this. I'll open up a Pandora's box, but I got quoted recently negatively uh, towards uh, Hillary Clinton. It wasn't negative about her necessarily as a person, but, you know, comes out of the box and uh, kind of criticizes and craps all over hedge funds. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I, I don't see this, you know, pitting the 99% against the 1%. I don't see it. You know, the, the, nine, the 1% are not victimizing the 99%. Uh, most of the 1% that I know are giving back and are trying to create a better life than 99%. Um, and so... Why why criticize hedge funds? When, particularly in her case, she hangs out with them when she goes to Martha's Vineyard in the Hamptons. Not afraid to ask for donations from, yeah, from Wall yeah, Street. Yeah, That's yeah, been her yeah, long... Yeah. The, the Clintons certainly yeah, have now been... Now, they want to advocate uh, higher taxation and uh, things like that. That's fine. That, that, that's, that's a different... That's a, a policy different, issue. Different, and I was, I've been quoted now for seven years. I've said that the idea of the... Income being carried, uh, taxes carried interest uh-huh. is wrong. My income. It's a special exemption it. that if you are running a private partnership like a private equity or hedge fund, you're paying a lower tax rate than yeah. now they, that the should not person. pertain to my income in managing the business. It should pertain to my income as an investor investing alongside of my other investors. And for some reason, the government has not been focused on that. Just like I think that there's a lot of efficiency to be gained. We have a Department of Education mm-hmm. at the federal level, uh, cabinet level, that's over a $100 billion department. I don't think we have to spend $100 billion for the federal government to tell the uh, state and local governments how to educate their children. 
that might have been the case 50 years ago and segregation, right. things like that. But I don't think it, it's today. How much of that budget is just them doling out money to different states? I honestly don't know the number. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be like uh, the fellow from Texas uh, <laughs> who said the four things. Uh, <laughs> oops. Uh, yeah, oops. Yeah. <laughs> I said the four reasons we sell a stock. I remember the four reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's the area you focus on. So that would, that would certainly make sense. So when we look at issues in society of income inequality, your perspective is the wealthy are doing, uh, at least amongst Wall Street, the people you know are contributing it, a lot very, to it, charity. It, it's very complex. You know, the president, understandably, would like to narrow this income disparity. I would like to narrow the income disparity. How do we do that? Well, I, I, I'm not an economist, you know, but I think you have to do it through education uh, by improving the skill set of these youngsters, by giving them a exposure to improving the, themselves. I look at my own situation, you know. Uh, it's my college education. It's my MBA at Columbia that literally changed my life uh, mm-hmm. and changed my whole income prospect. I mean, f- I left Xerox making $7,000 a year. I go back to business school, get in the MBA, and I hire into Goldman at 13500 which is a substantial raise. I almost off of doubled seven. my income <laughs> by going to business school for thirteen months. There was a trimester deal, so I went right through the summer because I couldn't afford to take time off. Mm-hmm. I had a six-month-old kid and I had to make a living. Um, and so it's education, it's getting into the home to educate the parents to motivate them. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the Jews of a hundred years ago today are the uh, uh, Asians who who really push education. And Each wave them. of immigrant has yeah, their yeah, own. Yeah. Focus on to, education, it we seems. Have to, and I think the wonderful thing in this program, the Koopman College Scholars, when the kids showed up with their parent, you know, that was wonderful to see. You know, I give money to a South Bronx educational program called the South Bronx Educational Foundation, and I think 70 or 80% of the kids have never met their father. Really? And I look at the, the and, and I appreciate the significance of my father in my growing up, that these kids have a terrific disadvantage. And so uh, I'm trying to create uh, equal opportunity through my charitable efforts, uh, by giving them a platform to achieve an education uh, where they have the aptitude and the willingness and the desire. So so you're willing, you support getting rid of that carried interest uh, for the income side, yeah, not the investment yeah. side. What other policy changes do you well, think, think uh, should uh, we, be made? Uh, look, the, the, I was beginning to develop a thought. The, the irony of the whole thing the last five or six years is uh, Bernanke wanted to create economic growth and employment. Mm -hmm. And he figured out the best way to do that is to create wealth because wealth creates consumption and consumption creates jobs. So he said the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to get the stock market up to create wealth, to create consumption, to create jobs. The trouble is is a maldistribution of the ownership of stock. So guys like me have benefited mightily. And because we've had this gridlock in government where the Republicans and the Democrats don't seem to get along and the president can't seem to unite them, we've not had fiscal policy initiatives designed to go along with the monetary initiatives, so the entire burden to deal with these recessions fall on monetary policy. Right. Now, maybe we should have a, a jobs program, maybe... Uh, infrastructure, uh, that, infrastructure, the normal post-recession... Bring back all this retained earnings that sit offshore in bank mm-hmm. accounts doing nothing productively bring it back in a tax holiday tied to hiring and infrastructure development. Take this big collapse in the price of energy 
uh, uh, put an energy tax on designed to infrastructure building. We don't seem to have the fiscal initiatives, and I'm not blaming the president, okay? Uh, I blame the president for some of this dialogue on, you know, uh, class warfare and stuff like that, but that was an old story, and I got audited by IRS as a, my present, uh, basically. Just uh, a coincidence, Lee. It's, I hope so. has nothing so. whatsoever to so. do but with that. I, I think we need a better coordination of fiscal monetary policies, and hopefully in time we'll get it. But you know, we, if we don't, we, we're going to head it to a disaster. We yeah. really haven't seen the normal fiscal stimulus that you get following, forget a, 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 an economic crisis, following a normal deep recession. We, we, it just hasn't it's, been it's there. It's fallen on the heels of monetary policy exclusively. So it's all it's all that. All right. So let's keep let's go through. I only have you for a few more minutes. So let me ask you some of um, the standard questions I ask everybody, and they're they're always uh, always generate some interesting response. Um, so you mentioned you start really early. T- take us quickly through a day in the life of Lee Cooperman. You're you're up at five in the morning. I get up at the five ten. I leave my house at approximately five forty five. Depending upon traffic, I come in mm-hmm. from the suburbs. I get into the office around 640, 6.45. Um, uh, You're there for 12 hours until 6 say, o'clock. I leave about, you know, depending upon the time of my dinner, uh, I leave the office between 5. I have to leave tonight at 5.30 to have dinner with a client. Mm-hmm. At 6 o'clock, meet at a restaurant. Uh, last night, I had dinner with a company. I met the company at 6, uh, got finished with dinner at 8, and went home. Um, and I get home, I take a shower, and then I log into a Bloomberg, not a paid commercial, I log into my Bloomberg terminal, mm-hmm. which is the most powerful terminal out there. But, by the way, during this entire interview, and I'm not exaggerating, you've been checking stock prices. People don't realize you're multitasking this whole conversation. Yeah, well, I'm not making investment decisions. <laughs> no, I'm, of uh, course not. I'm trying to see what But you have an eye on what's going on even yeah. throughout this conversation. Yeah, yeah. I would say I'm pretty... Uh, Plugged I'm in. Pretty obsessive. Uh, uh-huh. uh, excessive, obsessive, compulsive, compulsive. Um, and so you uh, go to dinner and then I go home, I shower and I log into Bloomberg Terminal and see what's going on in China, what's going on in Japan, what's going on in the euro dollar, what's going on in the dollar yen and uh, see what the headlines are. And uh, this is my life. You know, it's uh, it's. You know, I said it earlier on, but, you know, do what you love, what love, love what you do. You can't possibly work at this pace and this engagement if you didn't like what you did. My, my wife tells people that I'm gainfully unemployed. Mm-hmm. I get paid for doing what I would be doing for free anyway. And, how, yeah. you know, that, that's that's the that difference same. with me and retirement would be one word, and that one word would be investors. Mm-hmm. If I did not have an investors, I would be doing exactly what I'm doing now, uh, but I probably couldn't afford, not probably, I couldn't afford because I'm too cheap, basically. Afford, <laughs> no, I say it seriously. You know, I, I joke with people. Uh, you know, I, I have a home in Florida. I spend a lot of time in Florida working. Uh-huh. Okay? And I have two cars in Florida. I just put my second car in Florida. I have two cars in New Jersey. My first three cars were two 2002s, 2002 Lexus Convertible, a 2002 Lexus Sedan, mm-hmm. a 2008 Lexus all-wheel drive sedan, and I just bought a used Volkswagen Passat, but I feel like a rich man. Why? Because the first three cars preceded Bluetooth. My new car used, I bought with 13,000 miles, Volkswagen Passat has Bluetooth. So I get into the car and I feel like a rich man. I say, call Billy Gordiano at work. <laughs> and it does. And it does. Now my other three cars, I can't do that. So I feel like a rich man. You know, you can, you can replace those old cars. And by the way, the newer cars, the safety technology, 
the lane, you know, they stop I don't, automatically. I don't, I, don't, I don't drive a lot. Uh, and uh, I'm told that a 2002 Lexus LS430 was the best Lexus they made. I got 80,000 miles on it. it You're not selling like it. It drives like a new car. <laughs> it drives like a new car. And, and I, I'd rather give the money to charity. So that's and, what I was about to say is, you know, you describe yourself as cheap, but again, going back I, I, to— I, I didn't say cheap. I respect money. Frugal. I'm not going to tell you how much I give away every year to charity, but it's millions of dollars. And I, I don't spend that kind of money myself because, you know— You'd I, rather give it away than buy a new yeah, Mercedes. Yeah, because, you know, it's the end of the day. I don't place much value in that. I don't, I don't want to give any—I don't deprive myself of anything. If I want something, I buy it because I can afford it. But there's nothing that I really want that I don't have. You're not. You said earlier you're not a consumer. I'm not a, a clothes horse uh, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. I'm overweight, and you know, uh, uh, so I have the clothes I need. You're in a suit and tie. You just dress I, I, nicely. I, I, I dress properly. I dress uh, adequately. Though a guy, <laughs> I, I laugh. I got you know. It's a funny story. Uh, uh, um, uh, um, um, uh, Anthony Scaramucci. Sure. He said publicly somewhere that I was the worst dressed billionaire he has met. <laughs> and I said to him, multi. <laughs> you know, and he jokes about that all the time. I, I actually think I'm pretty well dressed. You're, you're well put together. I, I, you know, Your wife I, picked out the tie? That was... No, no, no. My wife, uh, he leaves me alone. I'm, uh, I actually am building a new house now in Florida, and my wife cedes everything to me. Really? Yeah, yeah, my, uh, yeah my wife basically... Uh, Knows what she's interested in, and uh, she pursues what she's interested in, and uh, very purposeful purpose. A very, very smart lady. Terrific wife. That that sounds fantastic. So, um, we mentioned your your mentors. We mentioned some of the investors. Uh, actually, we didn't get any other than Buffett. What other investors have influenced your approach to investing? Well, Roger Murray, mm-hmm. uh, Warren Buffett. I've mentioned Bob Mnuchin. I've mm-hmm. mentioned John Whitehead. I mean... Uh, all in different ways. You know, you, uh, Bear Stearns was a, a notoriously positive firm with charitable uh, instincts. Mm-hmm. And so you, you pick up different things and then you watch different investors. And I'd say it's the process of learning. I can't, I can't point to any one individual that's changed my life. On the industrial side, the guy that I had the greatest admiration for, where I spent really the first 25 years of my life studying, was mm-hmm. Dr. Henry Singleton, mm-hmm. who was the founder of Teledyne and arguably the smartest guy I ever met. Really? Absolutely. And... Uh, Basically, uh, I have no greater authority uh, to that view than Warren Buffett. In 2007, I you... gave a speech at the Value Investing Conference on two subjects. Mm-hmm. One was I was highly critical of stock repurchase the way it was being uh, um, um, you know, practiced at the time. And then I went through a case study that's used at Harvard uh, and it was entitled the, the Financial Brilliance of Dr. Henry Singleton of Teledyne. Mm-hmm. And Warren Buffett got a hold of those two presentations, not by accident. I sent it to him, having great, <laughs> having great respect for Warren. Sure. And this is a letter he sent me. I hope he doesn't mind that I'm reading it publicly, November 23, 2007. And he says, Dear Lee, I don't think you're going to pick two better subjects. Henry, that's Henry Singleton, is a manager that all investors, CEOs, would-be CEOs, and MBA students should study. In the end, it was 100% rational, and there are very few CEOs about whom I could make that statement. Mm-hmm. Paragraph. The stock repurchase situation is fascinating to me. That's because the answer is so simple. You do it when you are buying dollar bills, a clear cut and significant discount, and only then, underline only. Paragraph. As a general observation, I would say that most companies that repurchased shares 30 years ago were doing it for the right reasons, 
and most companies doing it now are wrong when doing so. Time after time, I see managers who are attempting to be fashionable or subconsciously hoping to support their stock. Lowe's is a great example. I use Lowe's as an example of a good buyback program. Mm -hmm. Lowe's is a great example of a company that's always repurchased shares for the right reason. I could give examples of the reverse. I love this following statement, but I follow the dictum, praise by name, criticized by category, best regard, Warren. And I show that letter to my two older, my two sons, and it's a great philosophy of life. You never see Warren criticizing any one individual in public. He might criticize investment bankers. He might criticize hedge funds. Right. But he doesn't go after anyone. It's a good philosophy of life, in my opinion. Um, that, that, that's a fascinating. What's the date on that letter? That date on that letter was uh, um, November 23rd, 2007. So here it is, eight years later. We see a massive run of buybacks the past few years. What are your thoughts on these? Are, are, are buybacks. Are they buying dollar bills at a substantial discount, no, no, or are they being fashionable? No. There are four kind of buybacks uh, that— uh, That's a theme, four of everything, it sounds like. Well, no, no, by coincidence. Uh, buyback type one has nothing—and I'll give you examples—nothing to do with fundamental value. I remember in 1994 being on the Chow line at the Allen & Company media conference, mm -hmm. standing behind Andy Grove, and I said to Andy, what statement is Intel making by buying back stock at 50 times earnings? He says, we're not looking to make any statement, basically. Uh, uh, we don't want the flack from the shareholders over option creep. Sure. So we're buying back enough shares to keep the, op the share count flat. Second kind of buyback, very nefarious, uh, the one that Warren, in a sense, referenced, that's managements that are looking to either support their stock or create this impression that's undervalued, or may, 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 maybe even creating a conditioned market where they're buying back stock for the company they're selling stock themselves. I'm not going to impugn them, but, you know, Andrew Mazzolo spent so several hundred million dollars worth of stock at 40, while Countrywide Credit was buying back stock at 40, $2 billion worth, right. only to sell the company to Bank of America at four. And I'm telling you, Bank <laughs> of America is very sorry they bought it at four. For sure. Okay. The third kind of buyback, which is the typical buyback now, is companies are blessed with excess cash flow. They've kind of convinced themselves that dividends are forever. We don't want to be embarrassed by having to cut a dividend. We could always turn off a buyback program, right. so we're going to take excess cash flow and buy back stock. And I Would say, you rather see those folks doing a higher dividend than yes, buyback stock? Yes, in stocks? many cases, in many cases. Okay, and the fallacy of that is that the average common stock is yielding, uh, uh, you know, two percent for every share you buy back. You're buying back fifty years of dividends. And if it turns out that a, a dividend policy was the wrong policy and you cut your dividend, your stock is going to get cremated anyway. Right. So look, look. I mean, I have enormous respect for Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs bought stock back for the Treasury at over two hundred in two thousand and seven, only to sell stock to Warren Buffett at under eighty if you properly account for the warrants. And all the banks and financial institutions and some of the oil companies were buying back stock at totally inappropriate prices. And the fourth kind of buyback, the one I love, the one that Henry Singleton did, he did eight self-tender offers, made retired 90% of the company's stock, mm -hmm. and it was a brilliant executed program, is they understand the value proposition of their company, they can correctly determine their stock is undervalued, and by buy back undervalued stock, they leverage the return to those investors that aren't selling. Because mm -hmm. what companies have to uh, you know, understand is when you buy back stock, you're enlarging the ownership of those that are not selling. It's the opposite not, of dilution. If you're, not, if you're enlarging the ownership of those not selling, you disservice your investor by buying back stock at inappropriate prices. Right. So at so the right price. At the right price, I love it. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the, the Goldman um, situation. Uh, Dell recently went private, and before they went private, we were looking at some of the numbers. It turned out over the course of their entire history— 
they spent more on buybacks than they actually earned in profit. I, I, I don't want to get into a debate with Michael Dell, but I have a very negative view of what they did. I think Carl Icahn was on the right track. In a sense, going private is a giant case of insider trading by management against their shareholders. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I would have thought it would be more appropriate for Dell to recapitalize the company, make an offer to shareholders, take out those shareholders that want to go out, and those shareholders that wanted to take the risk of a more leveraged enterprise and bet on Michael Dell's management team and his own talent to improve the situation, that would have been a fairer way to go. So three years from now, when he fixes it up and creates a normal capital gain for him in Silver Lake and right. tries to bring it goes public, public again, yeah, yeah that, that was gains that would really belong in the pocket of the investor. I'm the investor. So you mentioned Carl Icahn. What do you think of uh, activist investing? I would say on balance, positive. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's some negative aspects to it. Uh, I think this formula of go out and borrow a lot of money, leverage up a couple of turns of debt to capital, and buy back a lot of stock is not suitable for every company, but Mm -hmm. by and large, I would say activism has to be viewed in a constructive light, and he's been totally brilliant. Oh, the Netflix trade also is just phenomenal. uh, The guy has got a phenomenal record. He's only to be admired and respected. And um, what sort of advice would you give to millennials or someone just starting out their career today? I think we covered some of it. I mean, uh, I look at my situation uh, coming from where I came. I think education is important. If you're interested in the business world, I think uh, get a good uh, business education. You know, accounting is the language of business. So my MBA made a world of difference to me in terms of not only did it open up doors, it gave me technical skills I didn't have. I majored in chemistry, mind, and math and physics. Uh, and don't go into a field just for money. You know, all these kids interviewing, they could join hedge funds. Everything is cyclical. Mm-hmm. Just, to figure out what your aptitude and your interests are and pursue that career and go to work for somebody you respect and admire. You know, uh, it's very important that you get a good foundation. And then our final question, and I ask this of all my guests, what do you know today about investing and asset management that you wish you knew 40 years ago when you started? <laughs> well, I loved my career at Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. I owe a great debt of gratitude to Goldman Sachs. I think Goldman Sachs owes me because I performed very strongly as a professional. But I probably would have gone into this business earlier than I did. You wish you would have started earlier. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's a chicken and egg. You know, I developed my reputation at Goldman, uh, uh, but uh, this is a much more profitable business. The hedge fund business, you mean. Hedge fund business. But, you know, it's and you have a lot more control when it's essentially you at the top yeah, of, yeah, the, you know, of a firm than a partner. Your, your hoppers are higher, your downers are lower. You know, mm-hmm. You're out there alone. You know, I do have a team that I have a very competent team, but the, the truth is I didn't have the same infrastructure I had at Goldman Sachs. You know, I was uh, number 50 partner made, was 50 uh, partners in total, uh, 500 employees, and today there's 38,000 people, I think, and 400 That's partners. amazing. That's an amazing set of numbers from yeah, 500 yeah, well, to 38,000. Yeah. So now when you're a partner and you leave that partnership, I, I'm going to have to digress briefly because you brought this up. Are they buying you out of the partnership no, no, share? How does have, that work? A capital, we were a private partnership. You have mm-hmm. a capital account. The firm had very strong capital retention rules. When you retire, they gave you half of your capital back. Mm-hmm. The other half you got back after five years. So I took the amount of capital I can get out of Goldman plus whatever else I had, and I put it into Omega. Mm-hmm. And I started Omega in 1992, and that number has grown uh, uh 60-fold, something like that. Not too shabby. And uh, that's because I believed in myself, and I left my money in, and I want to be a co-investor with my investors. I I want to eat my own cooking, and so I I believe in that very strongly. And so 
I lost more money than anyone lost in 2008, and I've done extremely well subsequent to that, and I think that's the, that's the alignment of interest that should exist. Lee, I can't thank you so much for how generous you've been with your time. Um, this just has been tremendous. Uh, you've been listening to my conversation with Leon Cooperman of uh, Omega Advisors. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out An Inch Above or An Inch Below on Apple iTunes to see all the rest of uh, our various shows. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.